spend a little bit of time in the Word this morning, so let's, let's pray. Dear gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your Son, Jesus Christ, who's come and died on the cross for our sins, who was buried, rose again on the third day. We ask that we would continually look to the cross, and as was said earlier, that we would pour contempt on our pride, on our self-righteousness, but that we would look at ourselves honestly and truthfully, and we would look to you honestly and truthfully, and that when we do that, we pray, Father, that you will help us see Jesus as our wisdom, as our justification, as our sanctification, that all we have is found in Christ. And Father, may we, as we spend time in your word today, leave this place with the sentiment for me to live as Christ and to die as gain. We just thank you for everything you've given us in your son's name. Amen. So I remember my senior year when I was in college. Uh, I remember how crazy of a year that was because you still had classes and uh, the classes were a little bit more difficult than the classes before. But there's this huge thing that's coming. It's what am I going to do when I graduate, right? That, that's, a big, that's a big coming thing, right? Especially in your senior year. And so not only are you learning how to take what you've learned in the past, apply it to right now, study and learn, but then also start making decisions for the future when you don't necessarily know what the future holds. So you're making all of these decisions and making all of these plans based off of very little experience. I remember when I was in Bible college, my senior year, yeah, just that, that crazy time of, uh, with Krista, we were doing premarital counseling she was doing all the planning for the wedding. I was saying yes to everything. Uh, I was interim pastor at a church in, in, uh, outside of Scotts Bluff, Nebraska. I was uh, an RA. We were doing youth ministry together. We were driving to Yoder, Wyoming. I know that everyone in their life has passed through Yoder, Wyoming, the significant hub of the West of all 20 people that live there. We were traveling there doing, I uh, was in a band and just trying to figure all that stuff out. And, and I remember all of those lessons that I learned those senior year and a lot of the teachers would say, okay, here, here's the most important lessons that you need as you're getting ready to go out. We've been spending time in wisdom school, right? 30 sayings from these wise teachers, right? We've gone the gamut. We've gone from kindergarten, and today is our senior year, right? We're on the last five sayings of these 30 sayings. This is senior year. These are our senior classes. These are classes that are built on the lessons that we've already learned. These are some things that we need to know right now for the class, but specifically on Things that we're going to need to know for the future. What, what are the things that need to be put into practice as we leave school? We, we have all this knowledge now. These are the things that are the most important that we need to be focusing on. And so today we're going to be going over five sayings from 26 to 30. Some of this is going to be review. That's just the nature of this section. Some of this is going to be some new stuff. But it's definitely going to park and land 
on this concept of fearing the Lord. Just sidestep for a moment, little rabbit trail. Remember, this is the point of the book. The book is teaching us what, how to discover the fear of the Lord, how do we apply God's wisdom so that we fear him. This is the point. So from the beginning to the end, everything is tied together, tethered together by this principle of fearing God. Okay? So here are the six sayings that we're going to go over. The first one, which is found in verse 13 and verse 14, is that we're going to desire God's wisdom. We should desire God's wisdom. Not a new subject, but an important one. In verses 15 through 16 we're going to see that we need to love fellow believers. We should not view fellow believers as an opportunity for our own enrichment, right? We should set traps for other believers. The next saying that we're going to find, which is found in verse 17 and 18, is we need to rejoice in righteousness. Verses 19 through 20, we're going to see this principle of being content. We need to be content. And then the last one in 21 and 22, we're going to see that we need to fear God and the governing authorities. Fear God and the governing authorities. So let's look at this 26th saying, this 26th class. Notice what it says here in verse 13. It says, my son, eat honey, for it is good. Let's stop there. Uh, I think that's a good command for the rest of the day. Go home and eat honey. No, no. Clearly, that's not what Solomon is saying. Clearly, he's using a metaphor here. Uh, I don't know of anybody. Of course, then I imagine after the sermon, somebody's going to come up to me and say, I know somebody, but I really haven't met anybody that doesn't like honey. I know somebody's going to come up afterwards and go, I don't, or I know somebody that doesn't. But generally speaking, everyone likes honey. It is also hilarious to me when I was reading through the commentaries Most of the commentaries in the book of Proverbs are two sentences for each proverb. They basically just restate the proverb and go, that's the meaning of it. Not here. They spent time talking about what honey is, what honey looks like, how it tastes. If you don't know what honey looks like, you don't know where it comes from, you need to go home and talk to your mom, right? Like, okay, we all know what honey is. We all know that it's delicious, We know that it tastes good. But notice he says, eat honey for it is good. There's also some medicinal benefits to eating honey, right? But this is an analogy, right? Honey is is seen here, as we're going to see in the next verse, for God's wisdom. This is not the only time in the scriptures that you have God's word and God's wisdom compared to honey, okay? It, It is often compared to honey. Okay, and then notice what he says next, and he says, and the drippings of the honeycombs are sweet to your taste. Every time that you see honey in the scriptures, and it's used symbolically like this, it always denotes pleasure, sweetness, but really God's blessing and a valuable gift, right? This is something valuable. This is something you want. This is something pleasurable, this, this comes from God. This is one of God's great gifts to man is honey. And so here we could say that God's wisdom is pleasurable. It's sweet. It's God's gift to us. It's something that, that we should desire above other things. 
It's something that we should look forward to. It also has great medicinal help for us, for our souls, right? And this is exactly what he's saying, because notice the next verse in verse 14. Know that wisdom is such, right? Is such what? Well, know that wisdom is like honey. It's the same thing. It's the same, it's the same stuff. Here, here's a metaphor, right? It's the same. Wisdom is such to your soul. It's good for your soul. God's wisdom on how we relate to God and how we apply God's truth is good for you. Now, I know that that's pretty simple, and I know it's not the most profound statement that we could think of, but it's a statement that needs to be said nonetheless. God's wisdom is good for your soul. There's a lot of things that claim to be good for your soul that is not. This is, right? This is good. This book is valuable. It's valuable to you. Just quickly go with me to Psalm, one, or Psalm 19. Excuse me, Psalm 19. There we go. Psalm 19. <clears throat> Notice in verse 7. Hey, Philip, do you mind just turning it down just a smidge? It seems a little hot. There we go. Thank you, buddy. So verse 7 says, The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. So notice that God's word is perfect. There's nothing that we can do to add to it. There's nothing we can do to take away from it. And notice what it does. It revives us. Does your soul need reviving this morning? Has it been a tough week? Has it been a tough month? Has it been a tough year? Do you need need a little bit of revival in your life? Do you need that rejuvenation spiritually? Guess where you go? God's word. Right? That's what it says. That's the promise. It's perfect. You can't add to it. You can't take away from it. And what will it do? It'll revive you. Then notice the next one. It says, the testimony of the Lord is sure. It's it's trustworthy. You can trust it. Making wise the simple. Meaning that if you're not the wisest person, what will God's word do? Because it's trustworthy, it will make you wise. Notice the next one, verse 8. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. So these things are righteous, right? And when they're righteous, what happens? The heart is happy. When I see God's righteous commandments, it, that I rejoice in God's goodness. I rejoice in who God is. Notice the next one. The commandments of the Lord are pure, enlightening the eyes. Man, there's a lot of people out there saying we know the truth. We can enlighten you on the truth of the reality of what's going on, right? This is what God's word does, Right? All those other things are imitations. This enlightens your eyes to the truth of who you are and the truth of God. Then notice what it says next. It says, the fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. Uh, Here, the fear of the Lord, I see it as as a, he uses it as as another phrase for the the word of God. This is where I learn how to fear the Lord of, of taking him serious. Notice that this is a pure thing and it endures forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. Uh, so every single little piece is trustworthy and the whole thing is trustworthy, right? The little parts I can trust and there's no error and the whole thing together is right. And then notice what he says next. More to be desired than gold. 
even much fine gold. Now, I know that that's a nice sentiment to say as we read, right? I, 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 yes, of course God's word is worth more than gold. Sometimes we don't necessarily live that, right? Sometimes, sometimes our job and our paycheck outweighs the value that we put on God's word. But in the heart of the believer, should this not be the desire that we should have, this is the most valuable thing I own. These words are the most valuable thing that I have. And then notice what he says next. Sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. So these things are incredibly desirable. Okay? And, and this is the benefits of God's word. So when, so when Solomon says God's wisdom, that wisdom which comes from his word, that wisdom which is seen in his word, of course these things are good. They're good for our soul. And he says, if you find it, meaning not everybody has it. Hey, Philip, could you turn me down just a little bit? As well? Yeah. Thank you, buddy. Uh, not everybody has it, right? Not everybody knows God's wisdom. And so here's the idea that there has to be a little bit of searching for it, right? There has to be a little bit of time spent looking for God's wisdom, even though it is gold on the ground, you can, you can stop and pick it up. Even though it's honey, free honey, you still have to find it. And when you find it and when you gain it, right, that's the idea of finding it, is gaining it, understanding it, applying it. Notice it says, there will be a future and your hope will not be cut off, meaning there are really good benefits to knowing and loving and desiring God's word And that benefit is that eternal hope that we have from the precepts that we find here. There is a hope, even though you might not be, even though sometimes when the Lord asks us to do things, we think that's a little counterintuitive to how we should exist. We know that the Lord honors that and that we have this incredible hope which is found in him. And so this is something we've already studied, right? This idea of desiring God's word, desiring wisdom. But it's still an important lesson nonetheless. You and I need to desire God's wisdom. We need to desire it like people desire honey. We could say this. We need to have a sweet tooth for God's word, right? Somebody was telling me today that the past couple weeks they've eaten three apple pies, to which we can all say amen. And they said, they said that an apple pie has, tw- has a shelf life of 24 hours, which I thought was incredibly generous because we all know that a pie only has a shelf life of an hour. We need to treat God's word like that, right? I need it now. I want it now. I desire it now. I have a sweet tooth for this thing. How many of us, when our favorite candy is out on a table and we walk by it, we don't go, oh, I want that. I want that. I want that. Krista makes these things, these little bars. I don't want to give anybody the recipe because I don't want you to fight with temptation. They're so good. She leaves them out on the counter. I eat them all. That's how, I sh- that's how we should treat God's word. It's here. I want it all. I want every part of it. I'll lick the plate afterwards, right? That type of desire. Th- that, that's the type of drive that we should have. If you don't have that drive for God's word, uh, the, the advice I would give you, this is going to sound simple, but I, th- I think this is it, 
is you pray to God that he would help you develop that desire, and then you spend time in God's word. One of the things that God's word does is it makes you more excited to learn more and more. The, the, the more you get out of this book, the harder it is to get back into it. But once you get into it, man, that's like fresh-baked cookies on the windowsill. I can't just have one. I know I was supposed to go to work today, but Krista made cookies. What am I supposed to do? I'm going to sit here and eat the whole plate. That's the idea. Sweet tooth for God's word. Desire it, okay? Now, let's go to the, the next lesson. Verse, 20, or verse 15, the 27th saying. Notice what he says in 15. Lie not in wait as a wicked man against the dwelling of the righteous. It's really interesting because the command here is to us. Do not do this thing. It's amazing how many people, when I've heard them talk about this, they, they almost forget that first part when it says, lie not in wait. And they just go immediately to the wicked man and say, see what a wicked person does? But, but that's not necessarily the command, is it? The command is for us not to lie in wait. This word is to do not ambush. Don't set a trap. How many of us set traps for other believers? Now you go, no, not me, not I. I've never seen that in a church. Then you're not looking. This happens all the time. Sometimes we believers are terrible to fellow believers. And we'll do this, right? We'll take advantage of people. We'll, we'll wait to attack somebody. We'll sit and waiting like a lion crouching for a little gazelle to run by. <laughs> Boom, get them. So, so, so the idea here is for us to love, right? right? Not, not, to, not to lay in wait, not to ambush, not, not to, to bite and devour someone else, but, but to, to love So do not lie in wait as a wicked person against the dwelling of the righteous and do no harm to his his home. I I think this is pretty self-explanatory. Don't act like wicked people and don't, don't act like wicked people, especially against righteous people. We could talk about this dwelling of the righteous and do violence to his home. And some people have said, well, this word for dwelling is speaks of his barn and speaks of his animals, and so it would be like attacking what he has to provide for him, for his family. That's fair. And then when it says his home, that could speak against him or people inside of his, his family. That's fair. That, I, I think that's a fair idea of looking at it. I think the idea is don't ambush and attack and be bitter and exploit, trick, etc., Anybody, especially someone who's righteous. The question is, why shouldn't we lay in ambush and attack people? Notice verse, Notice the next verse, right? Verse 16. For the righteous falls seven times and rises again. The Lord protects the righteous and they will rise. So if you, if you are attacking a righteous person, and attacking that person, attacking their character, trying to take away the, the, the means for them to provide for their family. You're attacking their family. You're going after them, laying an ambush for them, much like the Pharisees laid an ambush for Jesus. 
Just be careful because the Lord has a vested interest in righteous people. And these righteous people will fall, but they will get up again. You cannot knock them out. Now, when I see this word falls, I don't think that this refers to the sin of the righteous. It is true that even us who have placed our faith in Jesus Christ, who's died on the cross for our sins, was buried and rose again, it is true that we, are, that we still sin. And we have moral failings. That is true. And it is true that as we have these moral failings that we need to confess and repent our sins, and we are disobedient children, that's, that, that, that's how he deals with us. That is true. But here, I think the falls has to do with the lying in ambush. And so really what this teaches us is that the righteous are not immune to attacks by wicked people. That, that, that life is not easy. It's not as if all of a sudden you just start living for the Lord and everything now is on easy street. That there will be no adversity, there will be no opposition, everything's going to be great. You won't be attacked because God has, has your back. And if you get attacked, that obviously means you sinned. That's, how, that, that's not what this verse teaches. It teaches, of course the righteous live in this world, and the righteous will be. We're not immune from these types of things. The one thing that we do have, though, is that we have the Lord protecting our steps. We have the Lord leading us and guiding us. The Lord has a vested interest in the righteous people. So you might attack a righteous person. You might be attacked as a righteous person. But know this, though you fall down a lot because of these attacks, you will be raised up again. You might be knocked down, but not knocked out. It's incredible hope for us as believers, right? The Lord's got our back. He, he, he might allow us to experience things. But he's never going to let us stay down. But notice the contrast. But the wicked stumble into times of calamity. So if you act like a wicked person, what's going to happen? You're going to obviously, if if your plan is to attack and ambush another believer, to ambush someone else, when you do that, you're actually setting a trap for yourself. You're walking into the calamity that you're setting for someone else. That's the idea. So the sense is, be careful. Don't do this because you will suffer the same consequences of being trapped in your own trap. And notice that the wicked, man, when they stumble into times of calamity, there is no hope for them of rising again. So as believers, let's be honest. We need to love one another. What did Jesus say? They will know you are my disciples by your love for one another. He tells them constantly, love one another as I have loved you. So realize this, church. The bar that's set for us to love one another is the extent in which Jesus has loved us. That's the bar. How did he love us? He gave himself for us. Because we were sinners. So it's automatically assuming that the other person is a sinner. Automatically assuming that the other person is going to be hurting you. But there's forgiveness. And there's grace. And there's mercy. That's how we are to love one another. This is Christ-like love. That doesn't mean that we're winking at sin. But it does mean that we are forgiving. It does mean that we are gracious. And that we are merciful. And I think that's the implication here for us as believers is that we love one another. 
We spend time walking by the power of the Spirit and saying yes to what the Lord wants, which is love. Tonight, we're going to be studying the book of 1 Corinthians. Spent all week reading the book of 1 Corinthians, and uh, it becomes very apparent from the very early chapters to the end that that church is an example of what does it look like when you don't love one another. When you love yourself. And in that book, you can definitely see these little ambushes that they're setting for each other. These little games that they're playing, right? Well, I'm of this person. Well, I'm of this person. And then they come together in these services. And they're, they're saying one gift is more valuable than the other gifts. And they're, they're emphasizing certain things and emphasizing certain people. And, and Paul, Paul says, look, everything that you do has to be done in light of the gospel, realizing that no one of us is really special. Jesus is the special one. He's the one we exalt. And everything we do should be out of love and love for one another. That's, that's the takeaway here, I think. Love one another. Strive to love one another. Even when we are unlovable. I think this is the mark of a believer. Forgiveness. Let's go to the next one. This next one's tough for me, friends. It's tough for me on a several, um, but it, this one's tough. So we're going to skip it. Verse 17. Do not rejoice when your enemy falls. And this says, unless it's the other college football team. No, I'm joking. Do not rejoice when your enemy falls. And let not your heart be glad when he stumbles. Man, this word for rejoice, we shouldn't be happy when our enemy falls. We shouldn't take great pleasure. We shouldn't gloat when our enemy falls. It's really bad theology if you do. Because if we realize that we're all saved by God's grace, and that it's not really by any work of ourselves that we're saved then our enemy is just somebody who has not experienced the grace of God yet. And the only reason that I I can live for the Lord is because of his grace and mercy towards me. But this one's easy. This one's easy. I mean, it's really hard to not do a whole bunch of Snoopy dances when you see some, some... some false teacher or some other religion, some catastrophic thing happens to them, or, or you see, you see some, some sort of moral failing, and you sit there and go, yeah, I knew I was right. See, the Lord is against them. Amen. No, we need to have compassion for our enemies. We need to pray for those who persecute us. Love our enemies. What does Paul say in 1 Corinthians? Do not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoice in righteousness. Our rejoicing should be reserved for any time that we see God working in someone's life. And when we see someone, when we see God's working in someone's life, that should be the source of our rejoicing. Now, this doesn't mean that there isn't a sense in which when we see righteousness triumph in our day, that there's no sense of rejoicing. This is something different. This is looking at a person, seeing a person fail, seeing a person fall, seeing a calamity come across that person, and then us openly rejoicing at their failure. 
Then notice the next clause. It says, and let not your heart be glad when he stumbles. This word means to have this deep-seated joy and pleasure and satisfaction, right? We're talking much more than just a thumbs up, right? A Russell Wilson thumbs up, right? This is, this is a, I'm happy. It's time to celebrate at the failure of my enemy. Question is why? Why, why would God, why, why should we not do this? Notice what Solomon says. Lest the Lord see it. I'm going to be honest, the Lord sees everything. So he's going to see it. So here Solomon is being kind of nice, lest the Lord sees it, like there's an opportunity that God might not see it. No, no, that ain't happening. God sees it all. So, so know this, that if you do this, God's going to see it, right? He's omniscient, right? He's omnipresent. He's going to see it. And say, and, and notice what he says next, and be displeased. God's displeased by this. God, God does not take joy in the downfall of the, of, the, of the wicked. He doesn't. There's not a single passage which talks about him talking, showing him with giddy delight when a wicked person falls. I think it breaks his heart. I think wickedness breaks his heart. I think it breaks his heart when he sees his creation, his creature, man, walk away from him. You see this example in Isaiah where he's, he's standing there with arms wide open saying, just come, come, I'll forgive you, just come. So he's displeased with their actions. But notice this, like a father, he may be displeased with their actions, but then he sees his child over here, giddy with delight, acting in a way which he does not act, acting in a way that's not loving, acting in a way that's not compassionate, Acting in a way that doesn't consider the fact that we're all saved by grace. Acting in a way that doesn't consider the other person as being made in the image of God. Right? This this complete jettison of these important truths. He sees us acting up. And what will a father do when he sees his children acting up and acting in a way that's, that's disrespectful and sinful? First, there's going to be displeasure. Literally, literally in the Hebrew, it, the, the word here when it says he'll be displeased means it's evil in his eyes. This is evil. God considers this evil. And then it says, and turn his anger from him. Now, this doesn't mean that if you start gloating over the, the, the downfall of your enemy, God goes, I'm not dealing with the enemy now. I'm going to deal with you. This guy's off the hook. That's not necessarily the implication here. The implication is... He's dealing with this one. Now he goes, wait a second. I got to deal with my child who's acting up. That, that, that's the possibility. We, we might be chastened like a child because we're acting up. We, we got to remember, God loves what is good. And he's no respecter of person. And doesn't he start with his children first in discipline? Of course he does. This, this is something that Man, I struggle with a lot. I, every time there's a documentary about Scientology, about some things that are going wrong in Scientology, there's a little part of me that goes, it's because they're wrong and they're filthy and they're sinners. <laughs> or there's somebody that has said something against me or against my family or even against this church. Or 
against the particular belief that I hold, and, and, then, and then they mess up in their, in their job or in their church, and I go, see? That's not, that's not loving. That's not good. That's not right. I've also seen this um, come to play in marriages where somebody who you're supposed to love becomes an enemy. That's bad. And then there is, anytime that there's failure, there's like this giddy enjoyment that there's failure. And they start playing this, what I call relationship chess, where they, they'll make these moves that'll set the other person off. And that person, that, that, then when that person does something that's bad, they'll, they'll let everybody know, did you see what they just did? Did you see what they just did? Did you see, what they, did you see how much better I am than they are? So therefore, then you should listen to me anytime I tell you about how bad this person is, because you can see it with your own eyes. As believers, this shouldn't even be named amongst us. This shouldn't even be something that's, that, that, that they see in us. You know what they should see? They should see us praying for our enemies. They should see us loving our enemies. They should see us crying and weeping over the lost souls of our enemies. They should see us forgiving. They should see us rejoicing any time that we see anyone doing something for the Lord. Notice the next lesson, verse 19. Notice what he says. Do not, or fret not yourself because of an evildoer. This means to be worked up. This working up is a working up to anger, right? Where somebody's hot under the collar, they can't be calmed down. They're so upset, they're, they're emotionally irrational. Do not work yourself up because of an evildoer. And then notice the next part. And not envious of the wicked. I think this fretting yourself and envy are tied together. And I think the reason that the, you, would, you would be so worked up is because of your jealousy. So this is like the idea of the righteous person looking at the wicked and going, well, how come they get all this stuff? Well, how is it fair? How is it fair that we know pastors who have ministered in the United States faithfully And they're struggling to make ends meet. But Hugh Hefner has a mansion. How is that fair? It's possible that there's envy. And there's possible that you could get yourself so envious that you worked up. And it doesn't matter. You just just look at it and go, it's just not fair. It's not fair. Don't do this. Don't get caught in the trap. Be content, believer. Be content not only because... The Lord is a good father who provides for you and gives you what you need, and he is faithful. But also be content because you have Jesus. You have Jesus. And with Jesus comes what? This eternal hope. What's the worst thing that can happen? You die and go to heaven? That sounds like a pretty good, uh, pretty good trade-off, right? Be content in who you are in Christ. Be content with Christ. Be content with what you have knowing that what you have is given to you by the Lord. But, but we like to be jealous, right? The flesh loves to be jealous. And, and Solomon here helps us. Notice what he says. He says, for the evil man has no, hu- has no future. So remember, the person that desires God's word, the one who's content, the one who's complete in Christ, we have a future. Why should I not be envious of the wicked person? Because all they have is right now. That's it. 
And then notice what it says next. The lamp of the wicked will be put out. Now, we've seen this earlier in the book. Remember when it says the lamp of the wicked? This refers to their life and their hard work. And it means that it will be extinguished. They'll have a short life or, or they have no expectation of hope in the life after. And their work will be left to nothing. What do they have to show for their life? Nothing. Nothing of real significance that will last. Why are you envious of somebody that has no future and everything that they're working for does not last? Does that make logical sense that not only do you realize who you are in Christ, that you have Jesus, that you have this incredible anchor for your soul, that you have this hope for the future, that you have a Father who provides... And then you look at them and say, everything that they have will not last. Does it really make sense to be envious of these people? No. And so the idea is for us to be content. Be content and trust the Lord. The Lord knows what he's doing. And the Lord gives as he desires. And if he desires for a righteous person to not have all of the nicest things, oh well. He's got Jesus. She's got Jesus. What more do you need? Don't get caught in the trap of saying, I need to have what my neighbor has, and I'm willing to do whatever it takes to get what my neighbor has. Nope. All you need is the Lord. That's all you need. Maybe bread and water, maybe some clothes and something over your head, right? Everything else is gravy, right? So be content. Be content. I I love what the Apostle Paul says, right? When Paul's talking about all these circumstances in the book of Philippians, when he was hungry and when he had lots of stuff, when things were going well and things were going bad. And, And then he makes this incredible statement. He says, I can go through all of these circumstances because it is God who strengthens me. Right? So it's the strength of the Lord that helps us be content. And when you realize who you are in Christ, you go, man, I got it made in the shade because I have Christ. This doesn't mean that there won't be uncomfortable moments. We already saw that in verse 16 about righteous people being taken advantage of. But I still can be content in the Lord Jesus Christ and have the joy of the Lord. Now, last class. Getting a little senioritis. Here we go. Last class. Last class. The 30th saying, verse 21. My son, fear the Lord. Have this incredible, awesome respect and awe and desire to honor the Lord. This applies to us as believers. Have this incredible, awesome respect for the Lord Desire to be obedient. Desire to honor him, to glorify him. Don't do anything that displeases him. Solomon says in another place, to fear God and to fear him openly. This is it. To fear him, to respect him, to take him serious. To take his word serious. Now, the next three words might be a little difficult to hear. And fear the king. To have respect for the government and the governance above you. I think we all can heartily say amen to the first, the second, a little bit shaky amen. 
But notice he doesn't qualify what kind of king this is. He doesn't say, and fear the godly king. Or fear the king which you think is godly. He says, fear the king. Paul tells us that we know that all governing authorities above us are placed there by God. And they are directly accountable to God for their actions. Of course, there may be a time that the government may ask us to do something that goes against what God commands. I think of Daniel, where the king told him, you're not allowed to pray to anybody else but me. So what did Daniel do? He was obedient to the rest of the laws in the Medo-Persian Empire, and he went home and he prayed. Right? That is the response. Just because a king may be ungodly in one area or in every area doesn't mean that we get to just jettison all of those other rules. It's not, it's not like they give one rule and go, well, fine, well, now I don't have to listen to the speed limit. Amen. As godly people, fearing the Lord, seeking to honor and glorify the Lord, we know that we're called to be good citizens. And part of this good citizenship is to listen to the king, to be honorable, to, to, to honor the king, to honor those who are above us. And notice what he says next, and do not join with those who do otherwise. Be careful who you associate with. Don't associate with anyone who does not want to fear the Lord. Right? That's a bad, that's a bad association. If you're associating with people, hanging out with people, getting advice from people who are telling you not to listen to the Lord... Don't listen to them. And if you're around people who are saying, well, we don't have to fear the king. We don't have to honor the king. We don't have to honor the government. Don't associate with those people. That's a bad association. One of the commentators said what might be happening here in the situation, which I think is probably the case, is imagine you're in this ancient world where there is a king and there's courts and there's nobles. And all of those nobles are jockeying for position to try to take over the government and and, and become leaders and and don't associate with them. I think of, remember that situation where David's son stood outside of the gate and said, the king doesn't want to, the king's too busy to listen to you. I'm I'm the, the noble of the people. Tell all of your problems to me. And then when he realizes that he's not going to be king... What, what does Solomon do? Solomon then has to deal with it. But, but here's this guy who's trying to usurp authority. And it may be likely that this is what Solomon is talking about. As somebody who, who may even sound good to us and say, well, here's a guy who cares about my problems. He might be usurping authority, but he cares about me. So I'm going to put my hat in the ring with him. Solomon is saying, don't, don't join. The question is why. Well, notice verse 22. For disaster will arise suddenly from them. Disaster for you. If you put your hat in the ring with somebody who's not the king to overthrow the king, uh uh-oh, and he finds out about it, do you think he's just going to laugh it off? Yeah, I know you're trying to overthrow me and take my power away from me. That's okay. No, he's going to take that serious. Do you think the Lord... You think the Lord likes it when his children are trying to persuade other people not to fear him and obey him? You think the Lord will deal kindly with those types of people? 
No, when, 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 rat, when disaster comes, it will come quickly and decisively. And then notice the next thing. Who knows the ruin that will come from them both? The idea here is like, uh, you know, the things that parents say to children. You don't want to find out what will happen if I have to come into the room. And, and you just let the imagination of those children run wild. What are they going to do? I know dad has done some crazy stuff in the past. What's he going to do if he's going to come back into this room? I don't, I don't want to find out. I don't want to find out. In fact, we have a camera in our room. Uh, we watch our boys, and there's been times where we said that, and I've listened to the boys have a conversation where Ezra goes, AJ, get back in the bed. Dad, if dad comes in, he's going to do something bad. We don't know what it is. That, that's the idea. How do you know what they're going to do? You have no idea what they're going to do. When it happens, it'll happen decisively, and it will come. So fear God. Don't associate with those who want you to disobey God. And be careful about who you associate with, specifically even in a political world. Man. Now, I know our government is set up a little bit different than the ancient world. There we had a king. I know that we have votes and we have political parties and all of that. But I think the advice should at least be to us as discerning believers, let us be careful who we associate with and the rhetoric that they use. Let us be the ones who are good citizens, who show respect to those who, desire, who, who deserve respect and honor to the offices that deserve honor. So, those are, that's the class, right? I remember my last class as a senior. I remember it was a half day. We went in. My teacher handed me a candy bar, two candy bars. The first one was a payday, and the other one was 100 grand. And they said, here you go. Here's your first payday of 100 grand. And they thought it was hilarious. I did not. <laughs> I was not amused. I remember that last day, and I remember one of the things that my teacher says is he says, We've done all that we could do to teach you and prepare you. Tomorrow is the first day of the rest of your life. We just went through a wisdom school, learning the lessons of wisdom, right? Now, Solomon was great by keeping immaculate notes for us, just in case we haven't kept our own notes for ourselves. So we could go back and listen. But the sense is still the same. Right now, we've been through the school. We know the lessons. Are you going to be that type of student who applies those lessons to your life? Build these into your life so that every moment, these are going to be aspects of your life? Are you going to be that student who quickly forgets, who loses touch with the lessons and says... The teacher was great, but he was old, and he didn't understand my life, and he didn't understand what was going to happen in my future. And I, I have my own plan. I'm going to go my own way. So I leave you with this challenge. What kind of student are you going to be? Are you going to be one that takes the lessons to heart, or are you going to be one that forgets them? May the Lord give us both the will and the ability to do all that we heard today. Let's go ahead and let's close in a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for today. We thank you for your love, your mercy, and your grace that you've lavished upon us in your son, Jesus Christ. We just ask that as we leave, that we would seek to honor and glorify your son, Jesus Christ. We thank you for...
for everything that you've given us in him, and we thank you for all that we have in him. We ask that you would continue to help us become more and more wise according to your word, and that we would seek to honor and glorify you. We say this in your son's name. Amen.